it's a pleasure to come and be able to share with you again today. So thank you for inviting me back. It's always a good sign when you get invited back. Um, today I've entitled this sermon, What is God Doing There? That's what the title is. And the story begins in this uh, same chapter that the scripture reading came out of. Uh, John chapter 4. It's one of my favourite stories uh, out of the Gospel of John. And so we'll explore this together. John chapter 4, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, then you're more than welcome to. And this is how it begins. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus' making and baptising more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus, Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptised, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He, uh, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to complete his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around. See how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from the city believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Saviour of the world. A few Sabbaths ago, we, we read this text as our text for, for the house church that we run. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of John at the moment, so we're on to chapter 6 today, later on. Um, but as we were discussing this story, a few things popped out to me that I hadn't noticed before. And I've been over this story before, and I've preached on this story before, and I've shared things about this story with people before. Uh, and yet, it's amazing how when you read scripture, the, that God points to certain things that you never saw in the story uh, in previous occasions. Um, and so this is where what I'm speaking about today is born out of, a, a house church discussion that we had. And the beginning of the story is actually the bit I'd never noticed before. Right at the beginning... Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, where it talks about what Jesus and the disciples were doing before they left for Galilee. And I think there's actually more significance to that than we probably give it. Uh, the significant, like, why is that detail there? Why did John bother including it? Is it important to the rest of the story? And I'd like to suggest it is. So there they are, beginning of the story, disciples and Jesus. They're, they're doing baptisms, they're bringing people to Jesus. And the Pharisees hear about 
how more people are being baptised with Jesus than are being baptised with John the Baptist. There's, um, I'm not sure whether it's chapter 5, but later on there's, there's some discussion that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And it seems like what's being suggested in the Gospels is that the, for, the Pharisees had actually put a fair amount of weight on John the Baptist possibly being the Messiah. There seems to be that kind of um, suggestion being put out there, which makes sense when you look at the beginning of this chapter, that they're concerned that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than John. If John's the Messiah, this is a problem. That's a side note. Jesus, not wanting any trouble at this time, decides it's probably best to leave this location and head up to Galilee. And to head up to Galilee involves going through Samaria. Now, I've, I've preached the, the Good Samaritans story here with you before, and, and I've told you about the Samaritans, and I've told you about um, the, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's a well-known thing. There's a few other things I dug up, though, in a, in a bit of research. There's a historian called Jos Josephus who writes about um, this disparity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, and journeying through Samaria wasn't an easy journey for a Jewish person. Uh, there would be harassment from the Samaritans as they went there. Um, there, there was an occasion where the Samaritans even snuck into Jerusalem to the temple and scattered human bones around the sanctuary in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. And as a retaliation, uh, the Jews then went and burnt several of the Samaritan villages to the ground. Uh, they, they had this, this argument of whose place of worship was the right place to worship. And, and so it's important when, when John is, is sharing this story where he adds that, that little bit in brackets that talks about how the Jews and the Samaritans didn't share anything in common. There's actually a fair amount they did share in common, but the point he's making is they were really against each other. This was serious. Going through this territory was dangerous and could involve harassment. But Jesus and his disciples go through Samaria anyway. In fact, I like the way that, that it's worded. It, it says, but he had to go through Samaria, which either suggests that's the only way to go, or it suggests he knew there was a purpose in going that way. So you can read into that either way. But Samaria is not Jewish lands. Samaria is not the church. Samaria is unfamiliar territory. So they come to Sychar, they come to the well there, and the disciples head off into the nearby city to get food. Jesus is left alone at the well. 
and he meets the Samaritan woman. We're not given her name, just her description. And immediately, Jesus crosses a number of cultural barriers. Just in his first sentence, where he speaks to her and says, Give me a drink. First of all, he's talking to her as a Jewish person, to a Samaritan person, already a no-no. He's speaking to her as a man to a woman in a, in a public space, which is also a no-no in that cultural setting. But not only that, he's asking for a drink from a Samaritan, and to the Jewish mindset, cultural setting, to, to even eat or drink from the same things that a Samaritan does would be considered unclean. Jesus crosses all of those barriers. They get into a discussion. Like, she's as shocked as, as we should be as the audience reading this story. Uh, she, and she, she asked him, like, why, why is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink? Uh, so she's as shocked as the audience to this story should be as well. And Jesus offers her living water. Basically explaining, you don't understand who you're talking to. You don't know who it is I am. And they get into this exchange. Uh, he asks for water. She asks him a question. He offers living water. She then asks him a question about how on earth is he going to get this water if he doesn't have a bucket. And, and then he says, you're never going to thirst again if you take the water I can give you. And that's the kind of water that she wants. It's hard to discern, really, what exactly her story is. Uh, some like to, to place the idea that she, she might have been a, a prostitute in, in that line of work, but I'm not sure that really fits with the narrative of husbands. Um, another possibility is illness. Uh, that due to illness, uh, she, she basically was continuously divorced from the husband she had. Another could just be the, because um, in those days, the, the sole purpose of women was childbearing. If you couldn't do that, then your purpose was lost in that society. And so there's the possibility, because the only person that could divorce in that society was a man. A man was the only person that could ish, issue a divorce. A woman couldn't. And, and so it seems like she was just rejected time after time as she was deemed by her husband to not be fit for purpose. And so she's now left in a survival situation a situation where she's with someone that's not her husband in order to be able to survive. We don't know the exact details, 
But when Jesus brings it up, it's pretty obvious she's keen to move on. And uh, she switches the conversation immediately to theology. And they end up having the whole discussion about worship and the right place to worship. And, and Jesus says that none of those things actually matter. That a time is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. One of the most wonderful things I like about this story is that this stranger in a land that is unfamiliar, um, an outcast in her society, who has to go to a well in the middle of the day in unsociable hours where the heat is at its hottest, that this person is the first person in the Gospels that Jesus says to that he is the Messiah. He reveals himself to a non-Jewish woman rejected by her own society. Now the reason I think that the beginning of the story is very important is because there's some parallels that take place. Now in the beginning of the story, the disciples are teaching and baptizing. That's what's going on. We get into Samaria and they head off into the city. This woman then meets Jesus and learns that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and she heads off into the city. And then there's a parallel that takes place again where the disciples come back. The disciples come back, but they don't come back with anyone, they just come back with bread, food. That's it. The Samaritan woman, she comes back, but she comes back with the city. And what seems to be being put across here in this story is that the disciples were fine with teaching and baptizing where they were previously, near Jerusalem. But in Samaria, they weren't up for the task. In Samaria, Jesus had to call someone else. In Samaria, Jesus had to speak through someone else. Because the disciples wouldn't be able to bring that city because of where they were in their minds. And there's actually numerous times that this takes place throughout the Gospels. And the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is a very similar story to this. Where Jesus has to, be, has to explain to the disciples that the feeding of the 4,000 is just as important as the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 were Israelites, Jewish people. The 4,000 were pagans, Gentiles. And you'll see that when you read the story of the 5,000, the disciples are keen to feed the 5,000. If you read the story of the 4,000, they're not too bothered about those people. They tell Jesus to send them home. 
And Jesus tells them, no, you feed them. And what's interesting, that even in the story of the 4,000, the whole reason that 4,000 even gather, and that's just men, by the way, so it's, that's not counting women and children, so it's far more than that. Um, the whole reason the 4,000 gather is because of the ministry that Jesus had done in that land beforehand. Do you remember the story of the, the demon-possessed man in the, in the tombs, tomb area? They cross the Sea of Galilee and they come to this place and there's this man that Jesus frees uh, from his possession. And he wants to go and follow Jesus. He wants to go with him. But Jesus tells him, no, you stay here. And in staying there, this man was able to speak of his experience with Jesus so that when Jesus came the next time, there were 4,000 plus people to greet him and to listen to what he had to say. What is God doing there? But we have other accounts throughout the New Testament as well where Jesus, uh, God, is in an unexpected place. And we can read these stories and not really grasp it straight away because we're living quite a separate life to, to first century uh, Jewish life. But if we were there, there would be some quite significant things that God is doing that we would have to take note of. And one of those takes place in, um, in Acts chapter 10, where, where Peter is called to go and meet with Cornelius. Now, Peter is very Jewish. In fact, Paul tells him off for his behavior as a Jew when it comes to other Jews being in the same surrounding area. Like, when Jews aren't there, Peter's all like, homey, homey with all the other Gentiles. When the Jews turn up to his doorstep, he kind of brushes the Gentiles to the side and, and, and becomes his staunch Jewishness. And, and Paul has to tell him off about this. But God calls this man, Peter, to go to Cornelius. Cornelius, a Gentile. Cornelius, a pagan. And the same thing that happens at the time of Pentecost to the Jewish disciples gathered in the room happens with Cornelius' household and everyone gathered in that room. And what does Peter have to do? Peter has to rethink his whole theology. Peter has to rethink his idea of what God is doing in this world. And he has to bring that story back to the Jerusalem Council so that they can recognize that God is actually at work in an unexpected place. Same thing happens with, with Saul becoming Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, a man who condones the murder of Christians is converted by Jesus on the road to become one of the greatest writers the New Testament ever saw that has influenced the Christian world more than anyone.
that God can take someone like that, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, to become an apostle to the Gentiles is an unexpected story. And then we see in Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11, that, that Jesus himself is accused of spending time with sinners. Jesus is in an unexpected place as the Messiah. What is God doing there? But we also see him talking about unexpected things as well when he shares his stories about the Good Samaritan, when he shares his stories about the parable of the, the vineyard workers where you have those at the beginning of the day and those at the end of the day and yet God pays them, the, the vineyard uh, work, uh, owner pays them the same and asks, are you envious because I am generous? Now, why am I sharing this? I think it's important for us to recognize that we are in a stage in this world where we haven't labored, but we are harvesting. And it's important for us to open our eyes to where God is and to recognize that some of the places we might expect him not to be is precisely where he's hardest at work. That he may be in the equivalent of Cornelius' house in our day and our age that he may be sitting at the well of a rejected woman, rejected by a society and forgotten about. He may be sitting at a well with someone like that right now, in our time, in our communities. That he may be interceding on the road of the lives of people going about their business, persecuting those who would follow him and bringing those lives around. And there's a warning in this story to each of us that our focus when it comes to the Great Commission isn't narrow it's wide. There isn't a certain group of people, a certain demographic, a certain culture, a certain colour, a certain gender. None of those things are, are what we should be pointing at specifically. But it's wider than that. Because God is bigger than that. And the kingdom of God is very different to the cultures of this world. There is room at the table for all. And so when it comes to a time like communion, 
A story like this is very important. When it comes to remembering what it is that Jesus did for each and every one of us, it's important to remember that he also did it for the rest of the world. John 3.16 is very clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if we're living a kingdom where we're rejecting parts of this world and ignoring parts of this world, ignoring people that have been cast aside, people that have been left in the margins, people that, that don't fit the, the same demographic as we do, then we would have to really question whether we're living a kingdom life or not. I believe it's Corinthians. See the Corinthians or Colossians where Paul's addressing a communion issue. Where there's those that are coming to meet together and some are being left out. There's those that have the means to get to the gathering beforehand and in the process of arriving early are consuming all the food. So that those that come later, most likely those who are poorer and didn't have the means to get there quickly, are left with nothing. And that's not the kind of table that God invites us to. That's not the kind of kingdom that, that Jesus paints. The kingdom of God is very different. And that's very important to remember, even in, in times like this where we've just had our voting and, and elections and all those kind of things, that we are part of a kingdom that's different to that. No matter who is placed in power in whatever country, that the kingdom of God is lived out in a specific way. All are welcome to the table. And the call in this message is for us to open our eyes to where God is reaping. So that we can be there in the right place at the right time to help bring in the harvest. I love the way that the story ends. Where the city comes out with the Samaritan woman and they're able to say to this woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this truly is the saviour of the world. Let us never lose focus of who Jesus is. Let's never lose focus of why Jesus came. And in partaking in the communion, that's part of remembering who Jesus is. That's part of remembering what Jesus did. And that's also remembering the whole reason. Uh, yeah, remembering the whole reason that, that Jesus was here in the first place, that it's bigger than us as individuals. It's bigger than that. It's about a kingdom of God. It's about a way of God. 
It's about a, uh, a life that is bigger than the bubbles that we find ourselves in sometimes. So there's a challenge for each and every one of us. And sometimes it takes being really honest with ourselves. I don't know where you find yourself in this story. One of the things I like to do when I read a story in the scriptures is to, to see whether there's any uh, place within that story where, where I see myself. Do you see yourself as the harvest? Do you see yourself as one of the disciples? Do you see yourself as the Samaritan woman at the well? Do you see yourself as the city? May we open our eyes to what Jesus is doing in this world. May his kingdom come and may his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.